Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. He, she, him, her, they, them, z, zir, v, ver, vis, xir, zem, hears, and the list goes on and on and is growing every day of the gender pronouns that people can request to be called by. So the question is, and it's a question that actually many of you have asked me about, and I've been reluctant to record a podcast episode on until I felt I could speak to it appropriately enough, because there's a, there's a debate, even in Christian circles, of how to answer this question. The question is, should Christians call anyone who asks to be called by a pronoun that does not align with the gender that they were born with or the gender they were assigned at birth, to say it more politically correctly? Do we respect the pronoun debate or do we not? And as a caveat, let's also talk about what happens when someone wants to be called a different name that is a name typically given to another gender. I am dancing hardcore around this question to keep it politically correct. Do be warned that not everything in this episode will be politically correct. It is not my intention to offend anyone, simply my intention to discuss this issue as truthfully and directly as possible. So let's uh, jump right into it. Merry Christmas. I understand when I'm releasing this episode, and that is going to be on Christmas. So Merry Christmas. Let's talk about Christians, gender identities, gender preferred pronouns. And as a uh, word of warning, I'm speaking to Christians on this, and I'm speaking from a Christian point of view. There's a lot of non-Christian literature and answers to this, but this is the Christian skeptic. And so I'm not trying to give a cultural or a political answer in this. I'm simply trying to answer, if you want to live a good Christian life, what do you do? How do you handle this? So if you're not a Christian, give me some grace and know that I'm speaking to Christians as a Christian about a Christian worldview of how to handle this issue. That being said, let's jump into it. There are, there's a split <laughs> in Christians on this issue. There, there's two sides of the arguments, right? Well, I mean, really, there's actually three sides of the arguments. One is a yes. One is uh, to the question of whether Christians should use gender-inclusive pronouns and should go along with uh, gender identities. So there's an answer that says yes. The argument for using gender-inclusive pronouns and respecting people's uh, self-defined gender identities is one based on just that, respect and love. And there's an argument that says, though I disagree with you, out of respect and love for you, I will honor what you wish to be called by. The same kind of logic could be used for someone who is a Buddhist priest to put a religious spin on this, right? You would identify that person as a priest, though you don't believe that they're a priest the same way the Bible describes and defines priesthood and being a priest. They still have assumed the title through Buddhism of being a priest. 
The argument goes, Paul said, I become all things to all men. So, therefore, if we're in a culture that respects gender identity and encourages, and in some places enforces, the use of gender-inclusive pronouns, then part of the becoming all things to all people is to go along with that. The argument also goes on to say that salvation comes through the death, resurrection, and grace of Jesus Christ, that it's not of works, and that adding a stigmatism, a, a, a dogma of you must get your the uh, gender assigned to you at birth, you must fully understand that as correct in one way, the argument goes, takes away from the grace afforded all people at the cross. And then if we look at the other side, there is a group that says no. And so we just talked about the group that says, yes, you should use gender-inclusive pronouns. And there is some uh, Christian philosophy and even some scriptural backing to that. But there's also the same to the group that says no. So the group that says, no, we shouldn't uh, use gender-inclusive pronouns, they also have a good argument. God made them male and female, the scripture says, right? Jesus called Christians to speak the truth in love. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church they cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of, of pagans or of demons. And so there is a, an element to this argument that says, if I use gender-inclusive pronouns, I'm giving into the logic of this world. I'm giving into the religion of the world, the cultism of the world. And, and I think that that term is appropriate to say that the world has a religion or a cultism. I think that the religion and the cultism is self, right? The, the oldest and most fundamental religion of the entire world is to worship yourself. <laughs> see Satan, see Adam and Eve, right? Like, if, if we categorize that then as a religious practice, which which I do think it is in, in a large regard, then the camp that says, no, we should not be using gender-inclusive pronouns is the camp actually on the side of truth, right? Is, is the camp that says, look, it's not unloving to refuse to use your gender pronouns, to your gender-inclusive pronouns. Again, I'm dancing all over these terms. Have some grace with me. But they're saying it's not unloving because I'm speaking the truth and I'm not giving a drunk a drink, as it were, right? Because there is an aspect as far as, and forgive me, because I'm not going to use politically correct terms here, but, and I'm not implying or accusing anyone a part of the LGBTQAI plus community of any of this. But for those that say no, if they see people with gender dysphoria as having a mental miscalculation, um similar to what I would say anxiety or depression is, that it's not, it's in, in no means a mental retardation or a mental um, impairment. It's simply a mental miscalculation of the world. And the reason why I compare it to anxiety is anxiety is a mental miscalculation of the world where your alarm bells go off essentially as it is, right, uh, for things they don't need to go off for. Well, in that same way, the camp that says, no, we should not use gender-inclusive pronouns, says this gender dysphoria is a mental miscalculation of the world and that it is perhaps even placing other issues that need to be dealt with mentally, perhaps even through counseling, and placing that emphasis on the wrong thing, which is a gender identity. And so therefore, the logic goes that by loving someone, 
you want what's best for that person, whether it means they like you or not. And so the camp that says, no, we're not going to use gender inclusive pronouns, says, I'm going to love this person by refusing to contribute to something I believe is harmful to them. Again, there, there could be a multitude of reasons. I think one of the ones that stands out to me is that gender dysphoria could stem from other uh, underlying, even systemic issues that need to be addressed in other areas. I'm not saying it does every time. I am saying there are anecdotes of it happening. There are testimonies you can read on the internet. There's, st- there's statistics and, and psychology papers written about how that does happen. And so I, I really do think we have strong arguments on both of those kind of polar ends of the camp of the yes, Christians should use gender inclusive pronouns and no, Christians should not. Of course, there is a middle ground. There is a, an argument that says, well, it depends. <laughs> you know, on one side, um, both camps are actually right. Uh, on one side, both camps do have good scriptural and theological justification to a certain degree, but I don't think either camp necessarily seals the deal on it. I do think that perhaps the camp that would say, no, Christians should not use gender-inclusive pronouns is probably the camp that is more in line with what the scripture actually says. And, and at this point, I do want to differentiate before we really dive into the, the middle ground as to the difference between someone changing their name to someone using a gender-inclusive pronoun, right? So there is kind of the debate about nicknames, right? So someone named Charles may want to be nicknamed Chuck, uh, but if someone named Charles wants to change his name to Samantha or Betty, <laughs> call me Betty. If you got that reference, you're deeply in sin. Um, <laughs> that means I'm deeply in sin for making that reference. That's a terrible movie. Don't ever watch it if you know what movie I'm talking about. So it's also kind of funny, but it's terrible. It's called Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. For those of you that don't know, it's stupid. Anyway, there's a difference in calling Charles Chuck or calling him Samantha. And there's a difference in changing Charles or Samantha or whoever you want to, we're talking about here. There's a difference in changing their pronouns as well, I think, than it is calling them a different name. I think calling someone a different name feels more dramatic, but is actually less dramatic. It feels more dramatic because there is so much in a name. What is in a name? Right, Shakespeare? Uh, but, But there is so much in a name. There's so much emotion. There's so much character that is called to mind when you say someone's name that when they change their name they truly have changed their identity but i think it's also important to remember that outside of christ as a christian speaking from theological terms now there is no firm identity outside of christ and so someone wanting to be called a different name that is a different gender is just an outward representation of an inward reality that really anyone who's not a Christian has, which is that their identity is self-defined. Their identity is shaky at best. I think the pronouns are the next step after the name change. Because if Charles changes his gender and wants to be called Samantha, it is still logically consistent to call Samantha him. And it is, because that's how Samantha was born. And not to get too graphic, but check Samantha's pants and what's in there. And I think that defines whether Samantha is a he or a she. And they or them is used for Legion, Beelzebub, and Smeagol, right? (laughs) Sorry, this may not be politically correct, but this is entirely a logical point of view. 
And now, obviously, not everything logical makes its way into the social sphere. There's a lot we do for social interaction that could be uh, construed and, and really isn't logical at all. But for sake of differentiation between name and pronouns, I, th I think it's important to realize that someone changing their name feels more dramatic but is less serious than someone changing their pronouns. Because when you change your name, it's entirely an internal decision, an internal struggle. When you tell someone they need to call you certain pronouns or they're offending you, it is now forcing your views on someone else. Which, ironically enough, is what people hate about the dogmatism of Christianity. But that's what it is, and that's why I think it's more serious. And so there, the debate lies. If Charles wants to be called Samantha, I, I would call him Samantha. But I would still call him him. But that does, ah, man, that does really depend on the relationship I would have with Charles, too. Also, I'm not, I don't actually know anyone named Charles that's, that I'm close with or that I remember, so this is not <laughs> talking about anyone specific either. This is a hypothetical scenario that I'm bringing up with this person, Charles, Samantha, whatever. So to get to the middle view then, the middle view is it depends on the context. With your waiter that you can't tell what gender they are, it might not actually be the best idea to tell them what pronouns you think they need to be called. And I would argue because it accomplishes nothing, because it adds no value to the conversation, it adds no value to your relationship with this waiter, that really you are trying to show the love of Christ too. In your interaction, in your tipping, please tip your waiter. But I think that changes when it's someone you know. And I think the level to which you know them changes the degree to which you are more or less blunt about the truth with them. Now, I have to be careful on this one because there's a parent-child relationship here that become, that makes all of this very, very sticky, right? If it's, a, if it's a friend you've known for years, if it's a sibling, if it's a close relative that you have the ability to speak bluntly, openly, honestly, absolutely real truth into their life, and whether they're offended or not, you know that relationship is completely solid and intact, then I would absolutely speak to the truth in love. I would not give in to any gender dysphoria, any kind of inclusive pronouns. I would be open, honest, real, and willing to work with them through this issue as long and as intensely as they need, and to be there to support them. Where this becomes tricky is parent-child relationships, where the natural tendency of a child is to rebel, and, and this isn't the case with every child, obviously, but stereotypically, children rebel against parents, and so the more you try to force a, a, a worldview or a dogma on children, the more they'll push against it. And I think this depends on the relationship of parents to children. If you have a relationship of, as I mentioned earlier, giving a drunk a drink, then they will expect that from you going forward, always. If you have the relationship that your child knows that you want for them the greatest good possible and that you will challenge them on areas that you believe and prayerfully consider to be wrong in their lives, then they're more likely to take you refusing to use gender-inclusive pronouns as an act of love. But, but the reality is, is statistics are now showing that baby boomers and Generation X have been more of the tendency to again, give a drunk a drink is kind of the phrase, the phraseology I'm using for this, but have been more of the tendency to cater to millennials and now Gen Z children to their happiness. That raising children for baby boomers and Gen X statistically has not been about 
raising them to do well in the world, in other words, with their best intentions in mind, but rather for them to be happy. And when you raise someone to be happy, you ruin them for life. And I think we talked about this a little bit in the last episode when we talked about the meaning of life, but happiness can't be the ultimate meaning of life. That makes you an animal, (laughs) right? Especially if happiness is derived from pleasure and lack of pain. If you think a good life is one that's full of pleasure and not full of pain, you're sorely mistaken in what a good life is. But, but I think that's where we see a lot of this issue coming from, right? Is, is the entire argument for gender identity is stemming from this issue of happiness. And really, and no offense if you're in this generation, because it's not this entire generation, but really Gen X and the baby boomers are to blame for this. And again, no offense, some of you write into me and I am blown away with how awesome you are. I'm blown away that, that you care about what your children think about these things. You write in questions. We have conversations over email. And I, I'm blown away with the love and how absolutely not like the culture you are. And so I commend you on this if you are. But you got to look around with me and see that the culture is not like you. The culture says if you want to be a good parent, you cater to your child's happiness. And that's where we're getting this from. And I think culturally, we're going to have to apologize to the millennials and Gen Z, for giving them this ideology, this mentality that ultimately is going to lead to a lot of roadblocks that we're going to experience politically and culturally. And so perhaps the most loving and most doctrinally supported way to handle this is a case-by-case basis, is prayerfully considering the interactions you'll have with people in the marketplace, the waiters, the baristas, the, the clerks, the co-workers, and, and pray now about those interactions because you won't see those coming. They will blindside you, right? So pray about those interactions and then pray about the interactions of people, friends, family, neighbors, relatives, people you know that you're going to have repeated interactions on more intimate basises with as to what you should do about the gender pronoun and, and sorry, about the inclusive gender pronoun debate. It could be that you're a parent and you have a son or daughter that is changing their gender and wants you to call them a pronoun. And if you, if you smack that hammer down like you've always done and you raise your voice and you scream and, and you say cutting passive-aggressive words and you've done that for all your life, maybe now's the time to lay down that sword and call them by whatever gender pronoun they want to be called by and respect their choice, respect where they are in the LGBTQ community because you won't show them love any other way. Maybe you're on the opposite end. Maybe you've shown them love and grace and you've given and you've been generous and you've led and you've tried to train up a child in the way he or she uh, should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. And you need that stern, tough love reminder that there is a way they should go and maybe they won't depart from it if you do. This is not an easy answer. I don't think we've come to any concrete conclusions other than you have to pray about it, other than it has to be a case-by-case basis, other than both sides of the argument have merit to them, have scriptural backing, have sound Christian theology behind both of them, and the gauge to whether you're right or wrong in your approach to using or not using inclusive gender pronouns is the answer to the question, did you love your neighbor as yourself? And of course, the objection raised in the Bible is, who is my neighbor? And that's when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, which means everyone's your neighbor. Your enemies are your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. Does using gender-inclusive pronouns help you accomplish that? Or does it hinder you from accomplishing that? 
that's got to be a case by case. We can't generalize the pronoun debate. We have to be open to both. And so if you are someone that's more afraid of confrontation, man, I challenge you, pray about that. Maybe you need more confrontation or a more confrontational spirit in your life because you're probably really good at being gentle. And that is an awesome thing. But speak the truth in love. On the flip side, maybe you're really good at confrontation. Maybe you're really good at getting in all the Facebook arguments or you're really good at holding up a picket sign and screaming you're going to hell. Maybe chill out on that because that's nowhere in the Bible. But maybe you need to work on being gentle. Maybe you need to work on controlling your emotions, controlling your anger. Because at the end of the day, no one was won to Christ by a forceful conversion. Jesus never forced anyone to worship him. It was always a conversation. It was always a come and see. It was always a walk with me. It was always a relationship. And that, I think, is the real answer to the question. Not, how do I handle this in my relationship, but how do I enhance the relationship? Do I speak more truth or do I speak more love? Both of those things need to be there, but it's got to be a case-by-case basis. Well, that being said, again, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. And thank you so much for listening. And I hope you've enjoyed the show.